Thanks for joining us for this inspirational teaching by Pastor Jeffrey Smith, Senior Pastor of City of Life Church. For more information on City of Life, visit www.col.tv. Let's join the service already in progress. We started a series last week called Foundations, uh, and I love this series. The concept is Foundations, How to Build a Life. And uh, I think it's an important question to ask at the beginning of a new year. How do you build a life? How do you build a successful life? Uh, Last week when I started, I, I asked that question. How do you build a life? I think very few of us actually ask that question. Instead, many of us just start building a life. We don't give any thought to what's the proper way to build a life. How many people would agree that many lives are falling apart in our society all around us? People are crumbling all the time. What they're building is falling apart. So not many people are asking this question. So we looked in the book of Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 7, as Jesus has just finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount on a variety of subjects dealing with Christian morality, Christian ethics, uh, what the Bible, what Jesus teaches about marriage and divorce, uh, what he has to say about hating people and hating in his estimation is the same as murder, same spiritual consequence as actually killing someone, hating them or not forgiving them in your heart is the same. He talks about things like adultery, uh, sexual immorality, that it's not just physically having sex with people that, that causes you to pay the penalty with God. He's actually saying that if you even think about it, so I mean, think about the ramifications in a modern culture where pornography is everywhere. Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount that it's actually about what you're thinking in your heart. Uh, so Jesus lays down the law about all these things and talks about the kingdom, that being kingdom-minded. And at the end of that whole teaching in Matthew 7, he comes and he tells this little story to close out his sermon. And he says, now anyone who takes all these subjects I've just talked about and listens to them is like a wise man who has built his house on the rock. And when the rains came and the storms came, it all hit his house, but his house stood uh, because he not only heard what I said, he listened to it and obeyed it. He said, but whoever hears the words that I say and doesn't obey it is like a man who built his life. They're not just building houses. Basically, Jesus is using an analogy that building a house is like building your life. If you listen to the things of God and hear the things of God, but you don't obey them, he's saying it's like building your life on sand and you can be very sure that no matter how beautiful or impressive your life looks from the outside, when the storm comes, and a storm will come eventually, if you're not obeying the truth of what you've just heard me say, your life will come crashing down with a great fall. And so the concept last week is we want to be doers of the word. Can I get an amen from somebody? We want to keep digging, that digging and excavating is more expensive than just building wherever. It takes more time to research, where am I gonna build? And it's worth digging and digging and digging and growing until you hit that bedrock. And God gives you the release, now it's time to start building up. You need to go down and build your life on the rock before you start building up in your life. So we wanna be people that obey. So that was part one. Part two here today, I'm gonna talk about the word of God. And I've got about 26 minutes. I'm going to try to do this whole thing in 26 minutes. I've done it all day, so I should be able to finish it here uh, in the third service. Our, sec- our service over at Colso was just great just now. It was so fantastic. Our two-year anniversary, there was a lot of people there to celebrate that. It was wonderful. Uh, but turn with me to, Matthew, or to Psalm chapter 19, uh, verses 1 through 14. That's our text for today. What I loved about that teaching last week, just one more quick point. I love the fact that in the story, Jesus said, whoever 
hears what I've said and obeys it, you're wise. Whoever hears what I said and doesn't obey it, you're foolish. Both examples had people that had access to the same information. It's not an information problem. It's a wisdom problem because wisdom, godly wisdom, teaches us how to take spiritual truths and apply them to our daily life. So that's what you need to be shooting for this year is to be wise, to take spiritual truths and apply them to your daily life. So here's our text for this week. Psalm 19, verse 1. The first part of this chapter, as you'll see, talks about God revealing himself in creation. Oh my gosh, he's everywhere. It's beautiful. And then it goes on in in verse 7, as you're going to see, and it talks about how God reveals himself through the written word and through the law of God. The, The law is the Bible. It's the written word that we have. So it's really wonderful. Let's check this out. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out in all the earth. What is that voice saying? It's the praises of God. Creation is singing the praises of God all around us. In the heavens, God pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. The sun is like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The Bible's saying God put that sun up there as a testimony of his glory and his wonder and his goodness. But now it goes into verse 7. And it talks about that that's not the only place through creation that God reveals himself and reveals his glory. There's also the written word of God. Verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commandments of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. I want to talk to you today for just a few minutes about Foundations Part 2, the Word of God. Father, thank you so much for your presence and your goodness here today. We love you so much. We trust you with our lives. We have faith in you. We walk by faith and not by seat, not by sight, Lord. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Lord, we live our life moving toward the prize, which is Christ Jesus in everything that we do. We pray for healing in this room right now in the name of Jesus. For everyone that's in this room that needs a miracle, just lift your hand right now all over this room. Miracles, God, in the name of Jesus. By faith, as people lift their hands, let them receive miracles physically in their body, healings, God, marriages, relationship, brokenness. Give people wisdom. Give them favor in the name of Jesus. And and God, we just trust you today, Lord, to be here. Help me deliver this message in a way that honors you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everyone said, amen. We have any Patriots fans here today? Should have saw that coming. As is evidenced by the full uniforms. 
You left the shoulder pads at home. That was probably a good move. Yeah. <laughs> Any Eagles fans here today? Okay. You guys are going to have fun today. The Super Bowl is going to be a fun time. You know, I, I, do you realize what kind of situation I'm at, in as a Cowboys fan? This is horrible. This is horrible. Can I tell you why? I mean, I know you didn't come to hear about football. That's all right. Uh, he, this is terrible. Okay, so we have five Super Bowls. The Steelers have six. They're the only team that has six Super Bowls. So we've got five Super Bowls. The Patriots have five Super Bowls. So I, on one hand, if Brady wins, then they surpass us in Super Bowls, which I don't want. Then stop. And on the other hand, <laughs> on the other hand, you got the Eagles who are in our division, who are like some of our biggest rivals, and they have never won a Super Bowl in the NFL. So if they win, that will be their first Super Bowl. Then they'll be like, yeah, we won. We won. So my prayer is that they cancel the game. All right, let's go back to our scripture. <laughs> I'm going to watch Justin Timberlake. That's all I know. Okay. So everyone in life has a worldview. A worldview is just simply the way you view life. It's the way you view the world. It's whatever lens you view the world through. And you can kind of pick up on people's worldview when you get in a conversation with them. Uh, their morality, their ethics, the way they make decisions. You can kind of narrow things down uh, by hearing things people say. You can tell where something is coming from uh, when you start talking to people about their worldview. Hopefully, if you talk to a Christian long enough, uh, you should be able to identify this person is basing their belief system on the Bible. Uh, because that's what we're called to do as Christians and as believers. We base our life, and we base our decision. Our worldviews are really not about our personal opinions. Our worldview is about what the Bible has to say about the world and about life. And that's really important in our series on foundations and making sure we understand that we have to be grounded and rooted in the Bible, our foundation has to be the Bible. I'd like to ask you, what is your worldview grounded in? Every person in this room has a worldview. What is it truly grounded in? Is it truly grounded in the Bible? Because what I'm worried about is that maybe in the world that we live in, this Facebook culture, that people are going on Facebook and they're seeing people's opinions on subjects. And they're saying, interesting, I, I like this person's take on this subject. They sound really intelligent, so boom, I'm, I'm going to pick that. Then I actually like, my pastor said something I kind of like. Let me take that. That's cool. And then I heard this over here on Instagram. I follow this, this girl, and she said that this is what she believes about this. And then I saw this one politician, and they said this, and it made sense to me. Then I saw this person over here, and this made sense. And then you sort of accumulate all these things that come from these various places. And now you've got this really weird worldview. Anyone with me today? That's sort of based on just like a customizable <laughs> A worldview that, uh, based on you. And that's really not what a godly worldview is all about. A godly world, worldview comes from one place and one place alone. We get our doctrines from the Bible, which we believe as Christians is God's word. What is a doctrine? A doctrine is a principle or a body of principles in a branch of knowledge or a system of belief. So, for instance, I could give you a doctrine by saying... I believe as a Christian, if I was talking to a random person, I believe as a Christian that the Bible is an infallible book. 
It is a divine, inspired, supernatural, infallible book that although it was written by fallible men, God kept it intact along the way in a way that honored and pleased himself. And I believe that the Bible is the only book in the universe. It's the only thing in the universe that can help me define what my true purpose in this world is. I believe that the Bible is a book that leads me to hope, that leads me to salvation. I believe the Bible is not just a book about how we're to live our lives, but it's a book about truth. And it's a book about a man who became truth and personified truth in the person of Jesus Christ. It's a book about that man that died and gave everything he had so I could live the life that I was meant to live. And that person could look at me and say, well, I believe that no one should ever say that there is a single book that you should live your life by. I believe it's not right for anyone to ever tell, to tell everyone else that this is the way it should be done. And if you have a different belief system, or if you believe in the wrong God, then you're an evil person. I, I think it's wrong that you say there's one book that's true. And what happens is a lot of people, a lot of Christians will hear someone say that, and they'll back off. And they get scared because someone has just said to them, I think it's wrong that you say that you have truth. But don't you understand that that person who has just said, I think it's wrong to have one book. Do you know what they've just done? They've just told you their doctrine. That in itself is a doctrine. They've rejected your doctrine and said, I think my doctrine is better than your doctrine. But they don't realize the hypocrisy that that is a doctrine in itself. See, everyone in this world has a doctrine that they live by. They have a worldview that they're trying to push on everyone else. The question is, where does that worldview come from? As believers, we believe that our worldview is grounded in a supernatural book that has been given to us by God, passed along through men, and supernaturally exists for us right now. Now, I want to talk, you know, I opened up today with this... Psalm 19, and the beginning of it is really beautiful because it talks about creation. Then it also talks about the law. It talks about there's a written way that we see God. So today I wanted to kind of paint this picture that we see God and we know that there's a need from God from creation. It's obvious to us. I want to further that point. I already did that through Psalm 19. I want to further that point through Romans chapter 1. Listen to what it says in verse 18. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godless and wickedness of people, now listen to this phrase, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now before I go any further, let's talk about for a second what that actually means. It means all wicked people that do not love God, according to what we're reading here in the Bible, all wicked people are suppressing the truth. Let's talk for a second about what suppressing means. I don't know if this is like a 70s toy, because I was born in 1972. So this may be like a super old type of toy. But do, does anyone here know what a jack-in-the-box is? Raise your hand if you know what a jack-in-the-box is. Raise your hand if you have no idea what I'm talking about. You're like, I, you know, I have an iPhone, Pastor. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's a toy to me. Okay, so let me explain to you what a jack-in-the-box is. It's this little toy that when I was a kid, it, you, you, you turn it, and it plays the songs. Anyone know the song that it plays? Pop Goes the Weasel. Yeah, that's right. You get scared right now. Hold on. You get scared right now when you're a kid because you know that thing about to pop in there. And then what happens is this little clown with a spring on it will pop out at that part of the song. 
so, oh my gosh, it's so fun. And you're a kid, you start laughing, you get scared. So then you shut it again and you turn it real fast. Then you stop. And you put your hand on the lid. And it goes, boom. But you're still holding it down. And you know that if you lift your hand up, that thing is going to pop out and it's going to freak you out. That's what suppressing is. Suppressing means that that truth is there. You know what's in the box. But you're keeping your hand on the lid. So what Romans chapter 1 is telling us <laughs> is that there is no one out there that doesn't know. See, you say, well, what about the preaching of the gospel? It's paramount. It's massively important that we be obedient and go into all the nations and preach the gospel to every creature. But what we're learning right here is that God is saying that people know the truth in their hearts. They are living their life like this. They're saying, well, I believe in science. I believe in logic. I believe in reason. Show me proof and I'll believe. And, you know, they can say whatever they want, but look what they're doing the whole time. The whole time, everything they're doing, what are they doing? Say it with me. They are suppressing the truth. Say it again. What are they doing? They're suppressing the truth. They suppress the truth by their wickedness. Listen, since what may be known about God is plain to them. Now, please, let's just look at that language for just a second. I mean, let's draw a circle and say, what may be known about God. That is a massive circle. It says, what may be known, what is possible to be known about God, this is saying is made known to wicked people. You say, well, well, to what degree? Well, let's read. Let's continue reading. It says, what may be known is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature, look at that, his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, that means the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, details about the fact that we need a Savior and that God's plan of salvation is through Jesus. It's saying all of that has been made known to them and has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that they are without excuse. Oh, there's all these lost people that don't know. Well, there may be a lot of lost people out there that have not committed their life, but it's not because they don't know. It's because they what? They've suppressed the truth. So, and, and, and what is it saying is, is the way that they see the truth of the gospel. It says it's clearly seen being understood from what has been made. So what it's saying is remember when we opened with Psalm chapter 19. And it's talking about how the heavens are saying stuff. The heavens are shouting out. They're speaking all these wonderful things. They're testifying of God. It's basically saying that a clam at the bottom of the ocean by just being a clam that God has made it to be, the wonder of that clam, when you look at it, that clam is effectively praising God because it's being exactly what it was created to be. So in many regards, it's saying that a clam is more obedient to its true calling than most people on this planet. Because it's testifying of God every single day. But yet men and women live, su what, suppressing the truth, I never seen no clam suppress nothing. A clam is just a clam. It's like, yeah, God made me. I'm a clam. I do what I do. It's my thing. But people are suppressing the truth. And I find it amazing that this is saying that people know details about God through creation. 
What does that mean? It means when any person walks outside, I don't care if you're a scientist, I don't care who you are, it's saying that instantly you go, whoo! Look at that sun right there. Look at those little dew drops on the ground. Oh my, look, look at that little anthill. It wasn't even there yesterday. And down inside of it, there's all these intricate kind of tunnels and all these, all these systems that go on. Has anybody here seen a show on Netflix called Planet Earth Part 2? Oh my gosh, that show is it's so beautiful. And it just, it talks about all these animals and different parts of, of the world. And there's this one that has this island where these lizards are born under the sand and they come out from under the sand. They've never seen this world before. They come out, they stick their head out for the very first time and all of a sudden they're being chased by snakes instantly. So the first thing they ever do in this world is just start running. So they, they run, they're being, and snakes come out of the rocks and they come from everywhere. And then the, the, the narrator says, and what the snake realizes is that it's chasing something that's been born for the very first time. The lizard, however, knows that if it's brave enough to remain still, it will be unnoticed by the snake. So therefore it remains still as long as possible until you got to watch the rest to find out what happens there. <laughs> the lizard knows what the lizard has been alive in this world for four seconds and it knows. Come on, what it's saying right there. If you're trying to tell me that that's just evolution, that that has been built up over millions of years. It's just, no, what it's saying is that God put that information in every creature. When we know things inside of us innately, it's not because we were the dominant animal that knew to eat all the other animals. That's not the way you know things. God built this world with systems. He built this world with knowledge that is innate, that he put that wisdom and knowledge into man, into creatures, into the systems of the world that are around us. That's what Romans is talking about. It's saying any person knows that there is God when you look at this world. You know. And if you say that it's not true, it just says that the truth of that is that you're suppressing the truth. Creation shows us there's a God. Then it says in verse 21, for all they knew, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Their thinking became futile. Their hearts became darkened. They claimed to be wise and became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like humans, birds, animals, and reptiles, and God gave them over in their sinful desires. So in essence, they chose to suppress long enough that God was like, hey, you're the one suppressing the truth. Your heart's going to become dark. So this is saying that creation is a testimony of God and that our conscience is also a testimony of God. Our hearts and our minds are a testimony of God. But now look, our text scripture in Psalm 19 talks about creation. Then it goes on in verse 7. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Now we talk about the written word of God. See, it's not just creation and our hearts and our minds where we find the truth of God, but the word of God enables us to know God. It's a God that wants to be known. It says the law of God is perfect, refreshing to the soul. 
The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commands of the Lord are radiant. The fear of the Lord is pure. The decrees of the Lord are firm. They're more precious than gold, sweeter than honey. Listen how wonderful that is. It's talking about scripture. See, John chapter one, verse one says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That's talking about Jesus. John calls him the word. Jesus is the embodiment of the written word of God. He is the living word of God. See, when Jesus came to this planet and walked this earth, he fulfilled every Old Testament scripture. He made it come alive in himself to fulfill the Old Testament. And the New Testament that we have that is a better covenant in Jesus is Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament. Listen to what he said in Matthew 5. He said, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. Just, just so you know, in the Bible, when you hear that phrase, the law and the prophets, they didn't use the term Old Testament. That's what they said is the law and the prophets. When they say the law and the prophets, they're talking about the Old Testament. So Jesus is basically saying, do not think that I came to abolish the Old Testament. I didn't come to do away with it, but to fulfill it. For I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not the smallest letter or stroke of that Old Testament will pass away until all of it is accomplished. So what Jesus is saying is that I'm not just a person who's helping write scripture. I am scripture. I am the living word of God. So if you put your faith in Jesus as your savior, then you have to put your faith that he is who he says he is. He is the living word of God. So the Bible and Jesus are inseparable. You can't love Jesus, but do away with a whole chunk of scripture. If you do away with a whole chunk of scripture, you're trying to do away with a part of Jesus. And it doesn't work that way. John chapter five. Anyone having fun today? I'm trying to make it something, my goal today, my goal today is that you fall in love with the Bible. I mean, that's, it's hard talking about a subject that is almost an academic type of subject. Uh, that's not my goal is to just give you all these facts. I want you to love the Bible. I want you to fall in love with Jesus, the living word of God, more than you ever have before. I want us to turn to the Bible for all of our answers. I want, you to, I want the Bible to be the starting place for the way we think about every subject in life. So... John chapter 5, Jesus says, you, he's talking to religious people who love the Old Testament but are rejecting him. He says, you search the scriptures, the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it, and it is the scriptures that bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. What he is saying is that you're trying to separate the Old Testament from me. He's saying, you don't even realize the Old Testament is about me. He's saying the whole entire thing was pointing toward me from the very beginning. You can't take me out of the story. I am the story. See, he goes on at the end to say, he says, he's like, look, you love Moses. Because Moses, yeah, he wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. He says, don't think that I'm going to accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, who wrote the Old Testament, because it's very accusatory. And he said, you have your hope in Moses. He said, but if you believe Moses, then if you really believe Moses, then you would read between the lines and believe in me. He said, because he was writing about me. But if you don't believe his writings, you're not going to believe mine. So what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, I am the Bible. See, it kind of does away with the concept of the red letter Bible, if you're honest with yourself. See, because the red letter Bible, 
Uh, anyone with me today? See, the red letter Bible is supposed to be the parts that Jesus said, and I understand what that means. That's when he's speaking in the first person. But if we really were talking about what a red letter Bible should be, the whole Bible should be read because Jesus is the living word of God. He said it all. He spoke it all. He is all of it. He's the embodiment of the whole thing. You say, well, what do you mean Jesus, you know, Jesus spoke the word. What do you mean he is the word? I mean, just look at the way he handled things. It says Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. He didn't eat for 40 days, and after 40 days he was hungry. And it says the tempter came to him, the devil, and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. What did Jesus say? Did Jesus say, no, I ain't going to do that. I ain't hungry. No, he didn't say that. He said, it is written. Somebody say that with me. It is. We need to learn how to say that more in our life. Jesus referred to the scripture. Jesus referred to the written word of God. He used the written word of God. He could have said anything he wanted to, but he appealed to a higher source, to scripture. He said, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to a holy city and had him stand up on the high point of the temple. He said, cast yourself down because you know that angels will come and rescue you if you do. And then Jesus answered him and said, yeah, it's also written, do not put your Lord, your God to, you, to the test. What did he do? He went right back to scripture. Jesus had a value for scripture. And then finally it says that he took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said, all this I will give you if you'll bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, Jesus himself appealed to scripture time and time again. He was scripture itself, the living embodiment, but he also knew that he just couldn't have any old worldview he wanted. He had to base everything he was on the word of God. So if Jesus had to do it, why shouldn't we? If Jesus had to do it and he was the son of God, why shouldn't we? Hebrews chapter 4 says the word of God is alive and active. The word of God is not just something that we read and let us read the holy word of God. And it's not just one of these things. The word is alive. It says it's alive and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, penetrating, dividing the soul and spirit, what is the soul? That's the human side of us that gets frustrated and our emotions get stirred up. But it says that the word comes in and, and cuts it so sharp between the soul and the spirit, the God kind of life that we're supposed to live. We know when we're in the wrong attitude, when the word of God speaks to our life, it makes us an incision deep between the soul and the spirit. It says it discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. See, the word of God is a miracle. It's inspired. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and inspired and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Look at someone next to you and say, I want you to be equipped for every good work. Look at him again and say, And you look good too. You got to encourage somebody today. Oh man, scriptures, it's God breathed, it's inspired, it's supposed to raise us up. When we know the scriptures, guys, you have to learn the scriptures. I mean, when I encourage you to take notes, I'm not being arrogant, write down what I say because I have studied and I'm wise. Quote me often on Twitter if you want to be wise too. No, I don't care about that. What I care about is you taking notes so that when you say amen, 
You're saying amen because you say, my pastor just spoke the truth of what's written in God's word. Amen. I say amen because I agree that it's true I, because I read it in the Bible. It's God's word. Don't say amen because you like what I just said. Only say amen if it agrees with what God has to say about the subject. That's what amen is supposed to mean. But you can't say amen effectively if you don't know what the word of God has to say. Think about what it has to say about every area of your life. How can you have victory in your mind if you don't understand what the word says about your mind? How can you have victory in the area of healing if you don't know and believe that God wants you to be healed? And how can you have any sense of freedom and be free from guilt and shame and judgment if you believe that God is against you and you don't know, in fact, that he's for you? You have to know what it says before you can appropriate its promises. I'm not talking about just a good book from a literary standpoint. I'm talking about a book that is a living miracle. Forty different authors wrote this book over a period of 1,500 years, 66 total books, 49 in the Old Testament, 27 in in the New Testament, every one of those books substantiates the other book. It all goes together as one amazing supernatural book that has the power to change the life of every single person that puts their faith in Jesus. The Word of God is alive. It is active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. Shepherds wrote this book shepherds fishermen wrote this book Tra tradesmen wrote this book nobodies murderers wrote this book kings wrote this book who could write a book like this with all these different people that so seamlessly integrates together to tell the story of redemption it's the story of redemption. It's a story about love. It's not just a story that's for the mind. It's a book that speaks to the heart as well. It can transform a life from the inside out. I see friends of mine that are out here that I've known for years that are standing up in this room that should be dead. That were in gangs. I see people that have made decisions. Their life should have been over, snuffed out by now. This book contains hope it contains life it takes people that have been thrown away and teaches them there is always hope as long as Jesus is on the throne you're gonna be okay and you're gonna get that second chance you need because we find our hope in Jesus and in Jesus alone And you say, well, oh yeah, that's easy to get up there and yell and scream and preach on emotionalism. And you just convince everyone that the Bible is real just because you believe it is. You're sweating up there. You can barely talk. You hurt my ears. The mic was distorting on Facebook. Yeah, right, I get it. Let me just tell you something. I believe this book is reliable from a logical perspective as well not just from a, an emotional or a spiritual standpoint. Did you know that Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars is considered to be the second most reliable book as old as the Bible because of the number of manuscripts that still exist of that book? Author, I mean, scholars trust that Gallic Wars is authentic because it has 10 manuscripts. That's how many manuscripts exist of the second 
most reliable book that is as old as the Bible, the second most, Gallic Wars, it has 10. You know how many manuscripts exist of the Bible? 5,236. 5,236. This is not a book that was written by creative novelists or authors that were trying to sell, tell some massive story that they just invented in some other genius brilliant it's the number one best-selling book of all time and some other genius brilliant person in a different era is just going to happen to add on to the story all this creative stuff let me just tell you stuff the bible has in it stuff in it that you would never put in a book that wasn't true think about jesus our messiah he died the most humiliating death go to every other story of world religions and all these founders have these glorious lives where they have personally profited from inventing this. Every other founder of every major religion, they died by getting personal advantages from the religion they created. They got wealth, they got women, they got political power. You know what Jesus got? He got dead on a cross. And the very last thing that he ever did, screaming to heaven, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Who would write that about their hero character if you were just making that up? He said, but you know what Jesus was actually doing? He was quoting the Psalms. That phrase, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's from the Psalms. See, the Bible put things in there that you would never put in a book. Why? Because it's true. Because it's true. Because it's the way that it happened. It has details in it that no one would ever just happen to write. For instance, Simon the Cyrene, when Jesus was carrying his cross and someone helped him carry the cross, that man's name is listed as Cyrus the Cyrene. Well, in one of the texts, it says Simon the Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And you say, well, what's important about that? Well, I think it is important because these books, when they were writing these letters, they were writing it to their contemporaries, to people that they lived around, who knew them. They knew the culture. They knew everyone that was in the Christian world. And when he said Simon the Cyrene, the father of Rufus and Alexander, essentially what he was saying, and if you don't believe me, this happened 50 years ago, go ask Rufus, go ask Alexander if their daddy didn't help Jesus carry that cross because they were there. It gives actual eyewitness facts. See, Luke, who wrote one of the gospels, he wasn't a disciple. He was a physician and he made a decision that he wanted to take all of the eyewitness facts of the Bible and speak to the people who actually heard about these. He was a disciple of Paul and he was going to do a detailed writing in this letter of everything that he happened after talking to the eyewitnesses. Look how he starts the book of Luke. He says, since many have undertaken to arrange in proper order an account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as from the beginning, the eyewitnesses and those becoming ministers of the word handed down to us. So it also seemed good to me accurately following and investigating everything from the first to write to you an account. This book is an account by eyewitnesses of what happened. Why do you think in some of the gospels it just says that Jesus healed a blind man? But in another one of the gospels, I believe it was the gospel of John. John says, oh yeah, by the way, his name was Bartimaeus. You ever wondered why John gives that information, but the other ones, maybe the other ones didn't know his name, but John knew his name. 
Why? It's just the way you write about true things. When multiple people see something, some people are going to have, I mean, if, you, if multiple people see a car accident, some people are going to say, oh, I remember exactly what happened. A guy in a green shirt was skateboarding by the thing, and then a black car came along, and then another guy will say, well, I don't remember a skateboarder, but I know that that black car had a license plate from New York, because I used to live in New York. And they're going to notice different things. That's the way truth looks. It's not something that you fabricate an event and come up with out of nowhere. Second Peter, Peter says, we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's why on the road to Emmaus, after Jesus had resurrected, he's walking with two guys on this road who were talking to each other. Be like, They're like, oh man, can you believe this crazy stuff has been going on in the city? Jesus, you know, he died and all that crazy stuff like that. And Jesus is like, yo, what y'all talking about? Like, oh man, you don't know. We're talking about this dude, Jesus, that, was, that died and all this stuff. And Jesus is like, oh, tell me more. Don't you love Jesus, how he is? He's so, he's so dope. And, and what's crazy is one, one person is listed one of the men's name was Cleopas. It doesn't say the other guy's name. I'm just going to tell you something right now. If you're a good writer of fiction and you're going to tell a story, if you're just making up a name, oh, one guy's Cleopas, the other guy's Alexander, you just come up with stuff all over the place. Why didn't he write the other guy's name? He probably didn't know the guy's name. And he only wrote what he actually knew because that is what the truth looks like. When you're an eyewitness, you tell what you actually know. I mean, I'm telling you, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter cut off one of the officials' ear, that story is told in multiple gospels, but only one gospel lists his name. It says his name was Malchus. Why? The person that listed it knew it. This is not a bunch of guys getting together saying, okay, guys, this is how it's going to go. Jesus was praying. Peter got mad. He cut his ear off. His name is Malchus. Make sure to include that because they'll know that we're telling the truth, that they believe that we have our story together. No, it's not the way it works. This book is supernatural. This book is life. This book is reliable. This book is hope. This book was settled upon over the years by the church, fallible men. Someday maybe we'll extend this conversation and talk about certain books, why they were added or why they're not in the Bible. Some you know, Catholic books have, you know, Maccabees and Wisdom of Solomon, some other books that we don't consider as part of our canon of scripture. It doesn't mean they're not nice books. It just means they're not part of our current Bible. But this book is reliable spiritually for matters of faith and practice. Oh, it's flawless. You say, well, what, why are you limiting it to faith and practice? What else is there? Faith is what we believe. Practice is what we do. What else is there in the world than faith and practice? It's what we believe and what we do. It's It's flawless. In matters of faith and practice, you can, you can build your life on this book. You can build your world on this book. It's supernatural. It's not just an exceptional work of literature to be revered. It's a supernatural book of truths to be adhered, to be followed, to be obeyed, to be listened to. My goal, and I did go over, I went over 13 minutes, I'm sorry. But I only did it because I, I only did it. I only did it because I told my wife when I was about to leave today, I said, babe, I don't know how to do, how to do this. This is one of the hardest messages I've ever had to preach because I, I don't want to just get up here and give a big lecture on the Bible. It's not, 
I, I try to give people hope when they come in here. Well, I want to tell you, you find your hope from the Bible. That's where we get our hope from. It's from the Bible. And I just want you to know you can build your life on this. And I understand. I mean, if I'm being honest with you, there's parts of the Bible that I don't understand. And I'll be honest enough to also say there's parts that if I was choosing what was in there and wasn't, I'd probably take out big chunks that hurt uh, for, for me to be in there. You know, I would make Sundays a day for football. I'll be honest with you. We'd have church on Saturdays. <laughs> I'm kidding. But the truth is, there's parts that are difficult to deal with, and I understand that. But I'm saying that when you allow it to shape your heart and to shape your life, it bends your heart toward heaven. You start having a, an appreciation, a love for the things of God. And you build your family, you build your community, you build your job, you build your decisions, you build your interactions with people around what this says, not what you say. Because what you say, I'm just going to tell you something, it changes every day. What you say changes based on your mood. Can I just point out something to you real quick before we get into an altar call? I, I want to give them a, an invitation here for people to get saved, for people to put their faith in Jesus, to accept the Bible into their life as, as the truth of God's word and Jesus is their personal savior. But I just want to point out something. In our, in our text, when we open up our text scripture, I didn't get to say this in the other services because I didn't have time. Uh, but I like this. In verse 11, it says, by your laws, your servant is warned. In keeping these laws, there's a great reward. Have you ever noticed that none of us really like the person that we were 15 years ago? Do you agree with that? Very few of us ever like the person that we were 15 years ago. If you're here and you're like 20, you're like, that's right, because I just ate cookies all day. No, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> Very few of us ever like the person that we really were 15 years ago. We look back and we go, oh my gosh, I was so immature. We say, I was just, I, I couldn't figure it out. I was messing up at every turn. I mean, it doesn't matter how old we get. So. What, what I like about the scriptures, it says that the, the Bible warns us on how we can really save a lot of heartache. Most of the things that you don't like about yourself are because you weren't really listening to what this had to say about your life at that time. But has that ever occurred to you? In 15 years from now, the you that you are right now that you think is so awesome is going to be the jerk of 15 years from now. If you don't heed this book. Because this book, wouldn't it be wonderful 15 years from now to say, 15 years ago in my church, week two of a message called Foundations, I made a decision to make the Bible the center of my whole life. Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but the Bible is my worldview. I base everything I am on the Word of God. And I saved myself so much heartache over the past 15 years by simply doing what that book says. This concludes the teaching. If you'd like to support what God is doing here at City of Life, click on the Give button at www.col.tv or text a dollar amount to the number 855-997-6900. We hope you'll join us again.